Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Here we are in studio, Ben. We just watched Joe Biden speak. We just watched uh, our former colleague, Doug Lute, who was the war czar, I believe was his title, yeah. during the Bush administration and then the Obama administration. It's kind of like a, it's like we're back in, what, 2011 or something. Yeah, yeah. But it's also your birthday, Tommy. It's my birthday. Yeah. Uh, my birthday. birthday and uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's birthday, apparently. I saw that in Politico Playbook, <laughs> uh, marking the occasion. Yeah. So... So for listeners, so listeners probably know what Politico is. Uh, they have a thing called Playbook, which is frankly a very helpful tip sheet if you want to kind of know. No, like, it's not. Well, if you want to know like big articles <laughs> yeah, yeah, of the day and like this I, sort of isn't DC, that what Twitter's for? You know, it's like, like the DC zeitgeist, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like Pravda for DC. It's yeah. like doing PR for the district, <laughs> and including like you know a, a rolling series of book parties, basically with yeah. the same people, and they do birthdays and stuff. And it was very nice of them. <laughs> to put me in there, I don't whatever, but I don't know how Mohammed bin Salman, <laughs> yeah. fresh off, relatively fresh off of murdering and dismembering yes. a Washington Post journalist, yep. still merits a happy birthday. Uh, yeah, I would, I would have left him. Uh, uh, that's where you need an editor. Yeah, you know, yes, you need an editor. You do. Uh, okay, but enough about playbook. Um, a lot to cover today. It's going to be uh, me and Ben again. Uh, this week, just us for the show. We're going to talk about Afghanistan a bunch. We have President Biden's speech that he just delivered, the horrible events of last week, all the challenges that are ahead for Biden and uh, the Taliban, really, and how this might change the U.S. approach to counterterrorism generally. We're also going to talk about the Israeli prime minister's visit to Washington last week. It's interesting how that was just completely overshadowed. Yeah. Could have been like a huge news event. Normally yeah. would have been. Yeah, we got in Zelensky this week too, but nobody. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, I did yeah. see that. Yeah, later this week. We're going to be mad about Nord Stream too. Is that the focus? Yeah, <laughs> something along those lines. Um, we're also going to talk about some COVID news and then a bit of news out of Russia. Uh, before we get to that, Ben, are you aware that California has a ridiculous system that allows you to recall basically any politician? And there's a big recall effort right now to strip the governorship away from Gavin Newsom? Yes. Um, yes, because I'm aware because I live in a state that could soon be governed by both a mentor and follower of Stephen Miller. Uh, oh, my God. You know, what, uh, what, what did he Larry Elder told Stephen Miller that he thinks he'll be president? Larry Elder told Stephen Miller that he hopes to live to, to see the day that Stephen Miller is president after Stephen Miller thanked Larry Elder for all of his kind of mentorship over the years. So this is the guy who will become governor if not enough Californians just simply fill in your mail ballot, no, and send it back, or just do whatever you have to do to vote, because let's not mess around with this. Like, we we don't need to, to go the way of Florida here, guys. No. You got till September 14th to fill out your ballot, vote no on question one. You don't have to like Gavin Newsom. A lot of people don't like Gavin Newsom. Do you want Larry Elder to be your governor? That's the question. That's the question. That is the question. You, yeah. By the way, what we just said was not authorized by any candidate or a committee controlled by a candidate, which is a hilarious disclaimer when we are 
not being all that effusive yeah, yeah, in our yeah, praise. Yeah, yeah. But uh, go to votesaveamerica.com slash California to learn more. Also, I know you're going to get hyped about this, Ben. Yeah. The first episode of X-Ray Vision from Jason Concepcion is up. It is fantastic. They dive deep into all kinds of geeky fandom shit. You're going to love it. Check it out. Subscribe wherever you get your pods. Uh, Jason Manzukis is one of the first guests. The takes are fast and furious. Fast, furious takes. Hilarious people. Check it out. Okay, let's turn to Afghanistan. Uh, it feels good to say this, Ben. The war in Afghanistan is over. The American war in Afghanistan is over. Don't correct me. God damn it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. Yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. But on Monday, August yeah. 31st, the last military plane flew out of Kabul airport. By the way, when did we start saying Kabul? I've been saying Kabul. Yeah. I used to say Kabul. People, there's, there's Taliban. Either Taliban. way, whatever the case is, you and I are getting it wrong. Okay, that's, that's right. That's like the rule of thumb on the show. <laughs> so the last military plane came out, officially ending the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan. I suppose that's the right way to say it. The commanders on the ground reportedly decided to leave about 24 hours before the withdrawal deadline to give themselves some cushion against security issues or maybe bad weather. This uh, enormously confused Mark Thiessen, the former torture mm. apologist, Bush speechwriter, who's yeah. now at the Post, who was critical of it. But what are you going to do? Time zones are hard. So the last Afghans evacuated were part of these elite commando units that have been providing security at the airport along with their families. The last flight out generally carried the commanding general of the 82nd Airborne Division and the acting U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. More than 120,000 people have been evacuated since August 14th. Uh, President Biden released a long statement on Monday saying that the State Department will continue to coordinate any efforts uh, and to get additional Americans or Afghan partners out of Afghanistan and said that the Taliban have committed to allowing their safe passage going forward. I've seen estimates, Ben, that there are at least 100,000 more Afghans still in Afghanistan who are eligible for you know, either SIV visas or P1 or P2 visas that would allow them to come to the U.S. Um, so we'll see you know, if that process is allowed to take place. It's obviously an enormous moment for, for the U.S. and for Afghanistan, um, something that a lot of people, especially veterans, worked a long time for. Uh, unfortunately, it is you know, weak in a moment that is marred by the horrific terrorist attack last week that killed 13 U.S. service members and nearly 200 Afghan citizens. And the reality now that the Af Afghanistan is just fully controlled by the Taliban. So I want to get to those events um, from last week in a minute. But President Biden just gave a speech. Uh, what did you make of the speech his argument, the tone, like what was your impression of, of this version of Biden that came out today? Well, I think, you know, he gave the clearest and fullest and lengthiest explanation for his decision and defense of that decision. Um, you know, I thought the most compelling part of the speech was when he talked about the fact that there was no kind of low grade option to stay in a war that is still a war that still has Americans serving, that's still spending hundreds of millions of dollars a day. Um, and that, you know, part of the rationale for ending this war is that, you know, we have a lot of, of big issues to deal with. And we weren't really moving the ball forward in Afghanistan. We weren't making things better there. We were expending a lot of resources. And at some point, you have to end this, this period in time. And, you know, look, I, I thought a lot, I, I, I watched that photo of the last soldier leaving the commander of the A-Second Airborne. Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about my own, you know, experience with this. I hope like everybody else who was involved in the war in Afghanistan. And, you know, my experience of the war in Afghanistan was largely in like situation room meetings with a bunch of people thousands of miles away 
talking about, debating, making decisions about this war. Um, I, I again want to be candid. I, I and this is not to you know cover myself. I, I was never. I wasn't like particularly enthusiastic about the surge. Tommy, you were there. I think you know we in the White House were kind of felt a little bit like the military, you know, really pushed that one uh, forward. But then my only experience of Afghanistan was Bagram Air Base in the presidential palace in Kabul. And and again, I think that, you know, my little piece of this experience highlights a lot of the flaws in it, in the sense of like this machinery that had been constructed was not achieving objectives in Afghanistan that were beyond, I think, what was achievable. And it, frankly, was informed by a lot of corruption um, and not just corruption of, of, uh, on behalf of the Afghan government, but on behalf of how we did military contracting and, you know, why we built an entire army that was so dependent on um, uh, on military contracting, just to take one small example. And so I think Biden is right when, you know, he basically indicts the overextension of the United States in this project that that was that had not achieved its objectives and that didn't have a kind of clearly sustainable um, you know, way forward. That was the part that was right. I think the other thing that was wrong with, uh, among many, with the way the war was uh, managed was not listening to Afghans, um, not listening to the voices of people that could have told us the things that we were doing wrong and tried to do so. And I think Biden continued that problem of like the Afghans seemed kind of absent from the speech. Um, the, you know, let's say it's 100,000 who are still there, the extent to which a lot of them did try to stand up uh, for themselves. So, you know, I think it, that's in kind of miniature how I've felt about the whole last couple of weeks in that I think his fundamental case is correct. This war was not working. It had to come to an end. He was going to be the one to end it. He's ending it for a number of reasons, including that he thinks it's an unachievable mission that's passed its expiration date, that has had a huge cost to it, and that there's a big agenda in the world that, that we need to focus on as well. But the, I think where we've been critical is, is just in this kind of uh, the lack of kind of seeing and validating and registering both the vulnerable Afghans we have to get out and just kind of the, the Afghan experience of this whole thing, which has obviously ended in, in, in trauma. So. So in, in a way, the speech kind of summed up the whole period of time where I think he's on the high ground in, in terms of ending the war. I think in the long run, that that is what people will remember from this time is that we ended the war. But that the in part because of Biden, but in part also because of just the mistakes of 20 years, the people left holding the bag were the Afghans. And that's something that you can't really feel good about, you know, and nope. so. So no. I, I think you know, Biden wants, understandably, I, you know, as a politician, as a president, as a leader, wants Americans to feel kind of good about turning the page on this. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the challenge is it's not that, you know, we want to be armchair generals here. I'm not like the, the neocons with nostalgia for the war, anything but. Um, it's just I do think we need to carry with us the experience of the, the Afghans as that, that should inform the types of decisions we make going forward is listening more to the people around the world that that we're trying to help or that we're trying to advance our interests with. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think on balance it was a it was a robust effort um, and, and his best case yet. And, and and clearly they did as much as they could to get, evacuate as many people as they could in this window of time. But like you know, we should also 
kind of take a moment to, to think about the Afghan people here too. So I agree with that. And, and, you know, I've been looking at a lot of the commentary and seeing people, um, including reporters like Richard Engel, who are in Kabul right now, talking about how, you know, this is a capitulation by America when it comes to um, democratic values or human rights. And there is some truth to what they were saying insofar as life in Kabul is going to be very different for the people who live there under Taliban rule. What I think is not necessarily getting translated in the conversation is that life for Afghans living in some of the provinces where the war was the heaviest fought has been horrific for, for many years now. That, that the U.S. hearts and minds strategy stopped succeeding long ago. They didn't feel like we kept them safe. The Taliban were not keeping them safe. And so there's a chance that life will be very different for some sets of people in Afghanistan that will be much, much, much worse. But for some, there's just relief that there's no longer a civil war in their like literal neighborhood. And I, I don't know, like that, to your point, like I don't know how to feel about any of this because I think about the women and girls who will no longer potentially be allowed to go to school, be treated horribly by the Taliban. And then I think about the families in somewhere like Kandahar, which has been experiencing the worst fighting you could possibly imagine and are probably thinking, we just wanted it to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the, statistics, right? I mean, you have tens of thousands, tens and tens of thousands of Afghan civilian casualties over the years. And that number had actually gone up um, a lot in recent years, because what Trump did is he essentially got rid of any restraint in terms of airstrikes and the civilian casualties they should ca- they could cause. And, and as the U.S. moved from being the ground force to being the air force, and we're relying more on that air power um, to support Afghan security forces, you just had a lot more people getting killed. And so there is, I think, a point that wasn't really present in any of the discussion that it, in, you, you have the terrible human rights circumstance of the Taliban winning the war, but you also had a terrible human rights circumstance in the context of the ongoing civil war. Yeah, just that there was a war. That, that Afghanistan's government was not winning. Um, I think, I guess, you, we never know. You, you know, it's hard to kind of as we've learned, to, to, to fully understand the complexity of the experience in a place like Afghanistan. I think what should stick with us is there are a lot of Afghans, like hundreds of thousands of Afghans, millions of Afghans, really, um, who not just, we're not just talking about interpreters, who basically invested in what we were saying. Yeah. Hey, we're here, we want democracy. There were Afghans who moved back to Afghanistan, who were in the diaspora. There are Afghans who started media organizations who started NGOs, who went into government because they, they kind of believed in what America was saying and what the world was saying about democracy and human rights. And so on the one hand, you feel like we've let those people down. Absolutely. Um, and on the other hand, I mean, this is what I've really wrestled with. Um, I don't think, I think we've learned, I don't think that promoting human rights through wars in other countries is the right way to promote human rights. So you had this kind of unsolvable problem where the perpetuation of the war on terror, I truly believe, and this is a big argument in my book, the perpetuation of the war on terror was undermining America's support for human rights globally because so much of our foreign policy was invested in this war. And those wars, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else, were not succeeding in building successful governments that protected human rights. So there is a human rights case to say, like, we need to end this period of war and make our foreign policy about something else. And Biden you know, spoke to that today. On the other hand, 
the act of doing that, of making that pivot, is undermining the human rights of those people who stepped up to support us. And I think that's just, I think it's a problem without a, a clear solution. You can argue that a better executed withdrawal could have protected more of those people. But at the end of the day, any withdrawal was going to leave those people vulnerable to the Taliban. All I think we can do coming out of this, besides really doubling down on trying to help every Afghan get out who wants to get out or trying to extend whatever support we can to those Afghans that can receive assistance from the United States going forward, is kind of where do we go from here? Like, I I was thinking as I listened to Biden talk, like, if he does truly build a foreign policy that moves beyond the war on terror. And that, once again, is really rooted in U.S. interests, but also kind of U.S. support for people who aspire to human rights and democracy around the world, then this decision will look one way. It will look like a, a, the turning of the page to something different and better, and, 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 and it will age well. If we don't do that, and if right. we're just still in the kind of, we're still fighting the war on terror everywhere well, else, and- uh, uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, oh, we only get to that because like yeah. there, there is all these reporting about you know they're basically considering what to do now in Afghanistan, yeah. what to do outside of theaters of war in terms yeah. of drone strikes and counterterrorism and stuff. So, well, so before we get to that, let's just you know the nightmare scenario that everyone was afraid of in terms of the current terrorist threat in in Kabul happened last Thursday when an ISIS K operative managed to get past the Taliban checkpoints, detonate a suicide vest in this huge crowd of people trying to get into Kabul airport, and nearly two hundred Afghans were killed in the attack, as well as eleven Marines, one and one soldier. Politico had a story earlier this week that detailed classified phone calls leading up to this terrorist attack where officials were talking about their concern about this intelligence, that this attack was maybe imminent, but they were unable to prevent it. I suspect the details of that story, specifically like questions about whether the U.S. should have closed this specific gate where the attack occurred, but I guess they kept it open to facilitate the evacuation of some U.K. citizens. I bet that will be the focus of some of these congressional investigations we're starting to hear about. President Biden went to Dover Air Force Base on Sunday to attend the dignified transfer ceremony and greet the remains of these fallen U.S. service members and meet with their families. Ben, I never um, attended a dignified transfer ceremony with President Obama. I, I did go with him to Section 60 of Arlington, which is where service members killed in Iraq and Afghanistan are buried. And I flew with him to Walter Reed when he met with wounded warriors. Um, and that was on Marine One, right? So it was like on the way there, you know, it was me, Matt Flavin, who you know yeah. well, Reggie Love. On the way there, like we made polite small talk, right? Yeah. He got briefed on what was going to happen. The way back was silent. Yeah. You know, it was President Obama staring out the window. You could see the toll it took on him on his face. Um there's been some reporting about President Biden's Dover visit, including the fact that some families were angry at him. Some outlets suggested that that was a sign of partisanship or polarization. To me, it was totally normal and the sign of a grieving parent yeah. who's understandably angry and not about politics. Um, I don't know. How, how do you think President Biden has handled this tragic incident? And are we surprised to see all these details of this, this Pentagon classified phone call about security at the airport already leak? I mean, I think that um, the reality is um, it's a war and, you know, Kabul, I mean, there there have been attacks like this regularly for, uh, and we talked about this, you know, last week, but there are huge suicide attacks in Kabul on a regular basis. Our troops just were usually kind of behind 
the wire, if you yeah. will. They were they were not out in an exposed area. There was an attack recently on the Secretary of Defense of Afghanistan's home. Yeah. So uh, I think that what we all just have to acknowledge is that when you're in a war zone, uh, there is a danger, and that they calculated that the the risks that were associated with the evacuation effort writ large. Forget one gate and one because it could have been at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Like the risks associated with that were worth saving potentially tens of thousands of lives. I mean, that's the one thing I kept coming back to is like, for all the question about what was futile about the mission in Afghanistan, and I would say that some things weren't. I mean, we went and we got Al-Qaeda, right? And um, these people saved a lot of lives. Like their service was, and and again, that's no comfort to the families that are angry, and and I'll never understand what they're going through. But but I do think that... um, you know, th- their service was clearly performing a, a function of of saving an enormous amount of people. 122,000 people yeah. got out. So um, it, I do think, so, so, you know, the point is, like, if you're going to be in a place like Afghanistan, you're going to be at risk every day that you're there and every minute that you're there. And they knew that there were these threats and they clearly assessed that they had to get this evacuation mission done as comprehensively as possible. And so they decided to live with some of those risks. And it's less about the individual decision-making down at the individual gate and more just about once you assume that risk, things like this could happen and, and, and very well may happen. Um, and it did. I, I was surprised by the speed of, of that leak. Um, and, and reporting that out while the evacuation is still ongoing was, I don't know, you could see the Pentagon was furious about that and potential additional uh, risk. Yeah. Because it showed that we were on maybe ISIS comms or something. I don't know. I found it concerning, you know, we I felt a building dynamic in the Obama years. as And so this got worse after you left, Tommy. Uh, you were fortunate to miss out on it. Um, but post-Benghazi, the the leaking out of selective leaking out of stuff that could then service a, a Republican investigation or a media scandal, it kind of increased. It's like we've all experienced living in American politics becoming uglier in the last decade or two. And one of the manifestations of that is every event that happens, people are like thinking ahead to what are the investigations going to be? What's the scandal going to be? What's the fall going to be? In a way that I just don't remember that being the case like in 2009 to 2010 when we came into government. And I, I, like even the last couple of days, people will be like, well, the Republicans are going to take back the House and then there'll be all these investigations. It's bizarre that we're even thinking about that. And I think this is a problem for our national security. That basically like if any national security is filled with complicated events, most of which don't go well, or you're managing things that aren't going well, yep. or you're responding to something that is a disaster. And, and if you're constantly thinking that, whatever you're doing is going to be the subject of some scandal. I just think this is a problem that we haven't, you know, fully internalized because I bet you the people in the White House have, and that that sucks because then you're just, I don't want them to be sitting thinking every time they write an email on a crisis, like, how's this going to look when somebody leaks it, yep. you know? Um, and there's like yeah. second or third order consequences. I don't know if you saw this, but lawmakers in the in the UK responded very strongly to the the suggestion in this political report that the gate was held open to help facilitate UK residents getting out because they felt like it was an attempt to shift the blame and blame them for the attack. Yeah. Which obviously that's not good. I, I mean, I, I, my guess is that that was not what the leaker was thinking. I, I bet they were 
probably angry at someone who made this call and trying to blame them in real time. And, you know, it, it would do exactly what you said, like kick up an investigation. But it, it was pretty shocking. Yeah. I mean, ISIS-K was responsible for the attack, presumably, not the people at the gate, not the people at the Pentagon, not the people at the White House. And, and I, I just think this is a dangerous, slippery slope that really started with Benghazi, where it's like, if anything bad happens in the world, there's going to be an immediate knee-jerk desire to make it a scandal. Which, by the way, like, you know, that's not what happened with Trump when four people were killed in Niger, when most Americans didn't even know we had any troops in Niger, you know. Um, this is a uniquely partisan thing. Yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P 
com slash crooked world. You know, you sort of you alluded to this, but the evacuation itself was pretty astounding and historic. 122,000 people. CNN reported this morning that members of the Taliban were actually secretly helping escort Americans into the airport. They were meeting at these like rendezvous checkpoints, moving them out. I guess that shouldn't surprise me because none of this was could have been done without the Taliban helping in some way or at least allowing it all to happen. But I don't know. Did, did you find that level of cooperation surprising? And is there any chance it bodes well for future relations? Or is this them just being like, we want you out of here. We'll make it happen. I think, um, you know, because my experience is, Tommy, is like I was working with some people, like, you know, a lot of people, you're just on WhatsApp chains and you're trying to figure out if you can get a name to someone who has a seat on a plane. And my experience of that was almost nobody that I was trying to help got out of Afghanistan, you know, because it was so hard to get to the airport. And 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 so obviously they they accomplished an extraordinary amount in getting that many people out. I think that when you look at the the Taliban here, you have to remember it's it's a it's an organization made up of human beings. And so there will be Taliban fighters who go around and and I tragically I think kill people or beat people up or we're beating people up at checkpoints. Then there's some Taliban people who are like, no, no, we got to like show that we can deliver here. And yep. we got some some directive from some senior person who's like, work with the Americans because we fine, we can get these people the hell out of here and we can look good for the international community. What I take from it is the Taliban leadership did clearly make a decision that at least in this period of time when the eyes of the world were intensely on them, they wanted to put whatever their best face forward was which was still a pretty complicated face. You've got guys with guns standing behind a newscaster. You've got, you know, all anecdotal beating people, you know, beating yeah. people up. But you also have the Taliban helping some convoys get through the airport. And, you know, that clearly happened, right? And so to me, it's it's a fascinating window into who are they going to be going forward? Are they going to be mm-hmm. the people who try to transition into being a government and not necessarily a government that you and I like, but a government that's mm-hmm. not that extreme on, on the the spectrum? Um, or are they going to revert back to being the thugs who beat people up and go around and kill people and, um, you know, uh, don't let people listen to music and stuff? And I, and I think this is what to watch. I think, well, you know, this will be pretty clear in the next month or two. So I think we probably are at the end of like the period of really acute media focus on Afghanistan or the evacuation, but to your point, like the challenges are are all ahead of us, basically. So I've been doing a bunch of reading. I'm just going to list out a bunch of sort of open questions and challenges, uh, and I'm curious to hear what you think is sort of the most important, the most difficult um, to get done. So some of the questions are just for the Taliban or about the Taliban, like will they even be willing or able to build a functioning government? They don't have one currently. Will they keep their promise not to harm Americans and Afghan citizens who worked with America? Will they let people leave the country who want to? Will the economy collapse? Will there be food shortages, right? I mean, that, that, that it seems like it's an acute problem that's coming. There's really high levels of food insecurity in part because of all the fighting. People like Afghan farmers weren't able to plant crops. And then for Biden, I mean, they're gonna have to figure out how to support refugees uh, and the political fight that will come with that. They'll have congressional hearings, undoubtedly, if not several rounds. There will be the classic D.C. bullshit insider game of trying to figure out who's going to get fired and speculating on it and talking about it. They're going to have to watch the terrorist threat emanating from the region. And then they're going to have to decide whether they're going to recognize the Taliban government and reopen the diplomatic presence in Kabul itself or just leave it in Doha, Qatar, which is where they moved it to. I mean, I'm sure I left a lot out there. 
it's worth noting, I think, that a lot of these questions and challenges would have arisen even with a completely clean, perfectly executed exit from Afghanistan. But like, what, what do you think the next big set of issues are on, on Biden's plate when they have the next like situation room meeting about this stuff? I think for Biden, like, so issue one is the Afghans, you know, we, we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Afghans who are, who are out of the country, out of Afghanistan, but they're not in permanent homes. You know, they're, they're in Ramstein, they're in Qatar, they're in the UAE, mm-hmm. they're in Tajikistan, they're, they're going to be going into Pakistan. And, and so, and then you have the Afghans who are still there and want to get out. And, and you in listening to Tony yesterday and like it's clear that they're going to continue to try to find ways to evacuate people again with assuming the Taliban lets them go. And, and so you're going to have to set up an infrastructure to resettle. Who are you going to resettle in the United States? Who are you going to try to resettle in places like Canada or the UK who said they take people trying to get other countries to take people? Um, that's going to be a whole project. Right. Um, then the security issue, the counterterrorism issue. Um, you know, making an assessment of, you know, whether the Taliban is actually trying to prevent an ISIS-K from getting a foothold. Are they fighting those guys? Are they making deals with those guys? Like, we should have enough intelligence mm-hmm. to get a sense as to whether or not the Taliban is, like, allowing safe haven for terrorists or whether they're in some kind of conflict with them. And then figuring out, well, what, if anything, do we have to do uh, about that? Uh, and then this question of, the politics of Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, the Taliban coming into this, look, that government is made up of civil servants and kind of technocrats who are not Taliban, but the government can't function without them. The Taliban's clearly trying to cut some deal. They're talking to people like Hamid Karzai and others about keeping some of that infrastructure of the government, probably like layering a bunch of Taliban people on top of it. That's going to be complicated. And there's huge humanitarian questions that go with that because, you know, if the government can't receive international aid, if the government can't really function, an already bad humanitarian situation, everything from food shortages to electricity or whatever, is going to continue to spiral. And then the, the questions be, can the U.S. and should the U.S. provide assistance, maybe not through the Taliban, but through kind of the U.N. system or NGOs to at least mitigate some of that. So I think they'll be gaming that out. I think this political recognition question, they'll probably test this for a while. You know, like you, I don't see any near-term scenario where we're recognizing Taliban, but I do think they might want to say like, let's, what are these guys doing over the course of the next year or two? Are they seeking to be like an odious but recognizable kind of regime? Or are they the kind of extreme version of themselves from the 90s, you know, where they basically didn't govern and they're executing people in soccer stadiums? And, and, and so they'll have to wait and, and, and see on that. Yeah. So final sort of Afghanistan adjacent topic that you kind of just touched on. So the Biden administration, we know this from news reports, has been working on a policy that will govern basically how they conduct counterterrorism operations in places where there aren't troops on the ground. Um, Talking about drone strikes, talking about basically special forces teams raiding compounds or whatever. According to a report in The New York Times, uh, the Biden team's working draft would return to a centralized vetting of proposed drone strikes for places that are not they're outside theaters of war, but for places like Somalia and Afghanistan, they had planned to establish uh, basically country by country plans that would give the Department of Defense or whoever like more flexibility to act under a set of guidelines. But that strategy assumed that Ashraf Ghani would still be in charge. So we'd have relations with the government, yeah. not the Taliban. So Ben, two questions for you. One, knowing that they're working on these rules, like how do you think the Biden team 
should scope what they're working on or whatever the output is to deal with these real threats, but again, begin to hopefully wind down some of the excesses of the post 9-11 forever war, like drone strike everywhere policies that our boss did, others did. Um, and two, do you think they'll be able to operate in Afghanistan? Because, I mean, you know, we just talked about all these things we need to work on with the Taliban, you know, food insecurity, recognition, getting people out, et cetera. If the U.S. starts taking counterterrorism strikes in Afghanistan, even if it, it's against, you know, ISIS-K members that, you know, the Taliban maybe want gone, I imagine they would view it as a problem or offensive or consider like, retaliating. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like there's going to be that much freedom of movement for us or to operate unless we risk really pissing off the people now in charge. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, here's what I would want. <laughs> I'm not, I, don't, I don't know if that's like what, what they'll do, but like the, you know, the, we talk about the forever war and Afghanistan is the clearest manifestation of it, right? It's where you have a bunch of troops in what has been a, you know, a war that we've been fighting. But, you know, the infrastructure we have of kind of drone strikes and, you know, violent counterterrorism operations spans a bunch of countries. And just to take drones, like, you know, in Somalia, in Yemen, in, you know, Pakistan, even though we don't talk about that, in a bunch of places in North Africa, what concerns me is the kind of permanence of the drone strike apparatus. You know, it's like we just, we assume we're going to be doing those things. And now maybe Afghanistan will be another country where we take drone strikes. And we saw like a perfect manifestation of both the effectiveness and the ineffectiveness and tragedy of drone strikes with, uh, it appears like a, a successful drone strike against an ISIS-K target, but also a drone strike that killed a bunch of civilians, including children. Seven kids. Seven kids. And, and so to me, I think where you'd want to get to is a place where we're not just taking drone strikes. Like the, the assumption is we're actually not. We may have to in a dangerous world there may be a plot that we can trace to somewhere. There may be a particularly uh, essential terrorist leader that, you know, we believe we have a basis to go after. But that when you're doing that, it's like an extraordinary thing where you 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 actually have to go out and say, like, hey, here's why we took this. I mean, think about if we had to publicly explain every drone strike we took, you know? Um, yeah. And I think one thing for people to understand is, like, th this got a lot of coverage during the Obama years. There was discussions about the kill lists, Right. And, and what those reports talked about was high value targets, like senior, senior Al-Qaeda people that we have intelligence on where that person specifically is and a decision is made to target them with a drone and try to kill them. Yeah. The other kind of drone strikes you see is, let, let's say we're talking about, you know, somewhere in the theater of war, somewhere in Afghanistan, and a drone operator sees a bunch of men that look like they're 18 or older in the back of a truck with what looks like weapons or an IED heading towards, you know, an Afghan army base and strikes that group of people. That's called a signature strike. It's like based on their activities. That's killing people anonymously. That's right. Like that, that's an effort to protect forces or do whatever. Like the, the high value targeting, the, the effort to collect intelligence, to really find specific people and go after them has at least the chance to be more precise. Now, again, like we saw in Kabul just now that, apparently an effort to go after a specific ISIS-K target went catastrophically wrong. So I'm not suggesting that it won't. But it, it, but I think most drone strikes are the latter thing I described, which is like going after activities from groups of people that look like they are probably fighters, but you don't really know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, look, I, I think 
we can go back and, and, and debate the particulars of, of the Obama era. There was a period of time when like, you know, you were dealing with Al Qaeda, the core of Al Qaeda, particularly in 2009, 10 and 11. Um, and, and as time went on though, and, you know, you're degrading and taking out all these terrorists and and yet you're not I mean the thing that always bothered me about the use of drones the most is the the sense of permanence in using them. I mean, th- these should be for extreme circumstances. And and so I, I and you're right, like a signature strike is the, the clearest example of something that can be routinized in bad ways. I mean, yeah, if you see some people driving a truck bomb towards like a, a U.S. embassy somewhere, that's a different thing. But so, sometimes, you know, it's more ambiguous than that. And, and sometimes catastrophic errors happen. Yeah. And, and so I, d- I just think that, like, you want to be in a place where, because look, at the end of the day, as weird as this sounds, like the most sustainable, effective way that ISIS-K is going to be denied a safe haven in Afghanistan, and this sounds really strange to say, is if the Taliban denies them a safe haven. Um, that's going to be more sustainable and effective than, U.S. drone strikes. Um, so I guess the point is that if they don't do that, and if we have a real problem because the Taliban refuses to deny them a safe haven, is basically permitting them to be there, then I think we have to kind of make an argument publicly about about that and say, look, you know, we we give you a chance to do this, but if, if you know, there there may be cases where we have to take a strike because we have intelligence about plots from here. Um, but I think we'll have to make that case. I, I don't think it should just be this kind of thing that just kind of happens without us explaining why we're doing it. And again, I think if you really want to end the forever wars, um, you're going to have to start to dismantle this infrastructure, not just in Afghanistan. I mean, why did we get here? We got here because civilian casualties, in part from drones, the corruption of the Afghan government, including the ways in which we built it, the corruption of U.S. private military contractors and the kind of privatization of war, that created a certain kind of dependency in the Afghan army. Those things are present in other places. Like they're present in Somalia. They're present, they were in Yemen, which is now a shell of itself. And so I think I'd like to see Biden extend this idea of uh, dismantling forever war to like, what is the, what is, what do we truly, truly need to keep this country safe? And, 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 And a scaled back version of that so it's not like anybody who we define as a militant we're taking out. Because by the way, the number of militants has gone up, you know, most every year since 9-11. Clearly what we're doing is is also creating terrorists, right? Yep. And so I, th- I think, he, you know, I hope that it's not just ending Afghanistan. It's beginning to dismantle this infrastructure of forever war that is operating in a lot of places. everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Tempera Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Uh, okay, we're going to turn to some things we didn't cover the last couple of weeks because we've been talking about Afghanistan so much. The first is uh, Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister, visited Joe Biden last week in Washington. He was there on Thursday, the day of this horrible terrorist attack in Kabul. So that meeting, I think, got pushed a little later. Uh, a few things we learned from that meeting and the interviews that Bennett did around it. Um, the short answer is kind of something we already knew, Ben, which is that Ben, ben is not a progressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, he opposes the Iran nuclear deal. He says he wants to expand settlements or he will expand settlements with natural growth. He opposes the U.S. reopening a consulate for the Palestinians in Jerusalem. And he told the New York Times that he's rolled out reaching a peace agreement to create a Palestinian state. So that's not anything we like. Bennett's tone is different than Netanyahu's, right? I mean, he says he wants to work with the U.S., Supposed to Bibi Netanyahu, who basically bragged about sticking it to the United States. I read some additional reporting that talked about how Netanyahu had basically cut off all intelligence sharing with the United States uh, when Biden was elected. You know, during the Trump era, they were coordinating on assassinations of people, including Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian uh, general. That, I guess, all got cut off. That is problematic for a lot of reasons, in part, though, because I, I, I think it's pretty well known the Israelis have better intelligence on Iran from sources there than, than we do. Bennett was also complaining about Ben and Jerry's. So great. Glad great, that's still yeah, going. Yeah. So Ben, one thing he did say that was really interesting to me was that um, every conversation he has with foreign leaders ends up being like double or triple in length if COVID comes up because Israel has all this interesting vaccination data and best practices, et cetera, et cetera. What'd you come away thinking from this visit? I mean, do we have a little bit of hope for Bennett still, or, or are we just getting played by a guy who's like doing a softer presentation of the same policies? I mean, I think it's a soft presentation. I mean, look, I, like substantively, he's kind of, it's like George H.W. Bush saying, we're, you know, a kinder, gentler um, uh, policy from Ronald Reagan. Like he's basically saying, I have the same agenda as BB in terms of opposing the Iran deal not wanting a Palestinian state, continuing settlements, but I'm not going to meddle in American politics in the same way and try to do this in a quieter way, which I, again, I hey, think is positive, right? Like, it. Uh, yeah, yeah, like it's- It's also not corrupt it's better, as far as we know. <laughs> it's better than the alternative of yeah. what we had. And by the way, we're also learning like the BB, I mean, who I had no love for, um, like every detail you learn, like the guy's more and more of a lunatic, you know, like- terminating intelligence sharing in the United States, like bragging about really sticking it to the Democrats. I mean, we knew all this stuff, but so I, I think the way to, you know, someone made this comment that like what, what I think Bennett's strategy here is, and it may be quite savvy, is to just keep the attention off, you know, like they're going to keep building settlements, but they're not going to build the most provocative settlements so that they don't invite statements from Biden, but they kind of count on the Biden administration to kind of be looking at other things. They don't help us get to an Iran deal. And they, they kind of oppose an Iran deal, but they don't make a lot of noise about it. Um, and so I think it presents kind of opportunities for Biden since he doesn't have a Bibi Netanyahu come here and you know lobbying against him and politicizing everything. But challenges, too, because in a kind of savvy way, Bennett's not going to be he may try to not be overly provocative in 
his actions, and that may allow for attention to just kind of drift while settlements grow and things get worse for the Palestinians kind of until the next flare-up or the next Gaza war. Um, and and so, you know, I, again, I think it's preferable to where we were, but it, it, it doesn't kind of make it any easier <laughs> to, to, to either get an Iran deal or to make progress on the Palestinian issue. Yeah, it does seem like... Uh... The Iran deal is in a bit of a fragile place as well. Not, yeah, not, we should talk about that good. in a later show. It's just not, it doesn't look good right now. No, it does not look good. Speaking of not looking good, uh, some COVID news, Ben. The European Union has removed the United States from its safe travel list, which means Americans will be discouraged from visiting EU countries for non-essential travel, and EU countries could bring back measures like quarantines and other steps on a case-by-case basis. I guess my response is, what took you so long? Yeah, yeah we, did, did they just learn about Florida? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I mean, it's it's. Uh, it, well, it does speak to the. There, there's a kind of lack of clarity about this international travel question, which you know, someone who used to travel internationally, like I don't, I don't even quite understand when and where it's. You know, who's deciding? No clue. Yeah, there just needs to be. I, I'd like to see some more, um, you know, multilateralism on this about kind of transparency about what the guidelines are, because it, it all feels very ad hoc, you know, um, including the CU decision, which, yeah, presumably they could have made like a month ago based on the numbers um, they're making now. Um, so it, it, if anything, whether it's European governments, U.S. governments, Asian governments, anywhere, um, I think there's going to have to be, and normally you do this through like the World Health Organization, but like there's going to have to be a kind of pretty clear effort to determine and, and tell people like, hey, here's where things are, are are going on international travel. Yeah, and on top of that, the the whole conversation in the US around boosters is probably not helping our efforts to uh to conduct some global vaccine diplomacy and get the world vaccinated. So that's yeah, not great. No, that I mean that and that's the only long term solution to this is to, yeah. to vaccinate as many people as possible as many places as possible. Uh last bit of news from Russia. So Russia has parliamentary elections on September nineteenth. You know, there's a lot of conversation about the ways Putin has or will you know, rig those. Uh, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, anti-corruption activist we've talked about, who's currently sitting in a prison in eastern Moscow, did an interview with the New York Times ahead of these elections. Sounded like he filled out like something 50 some odd pages of like handwritten Q's and A's to like get them back. Impressive. Uh, A couple things that jumped out at me, Ben. One, these Russian prisons apparently have transitioned from forced labor camps to just making prisoners watch eight hours a day of mindless propaganda videos. It sounds like that's like their new brand of torture. Yeah, yeah, that's which is a brand of torture. Reading, writing, doing anything else, he said, is prohibited. They've stopped waking Navalny up uh, once an hour every hour, so that's good. Um, he, in this interview, criticized U.S. sanctions because he believes they hurt the Russian people. He only wants the U.S. to target top oligarchs with sanctions. Navalny, for you know, he's incredibly brave. He has some flaws we've talked about previously. He's got a great sense of humor for someone in a horrible situation. He's hilarious. So he said that he and other inmates sometimes cook snacks in a microwave. This is a quote. When we cook, I always remember the classic scene from Goodfellas when the mafia bosses cook pasta in a prison cell. He said, (laughs) unfortunately, we don't have such a cool pot and pasta is forbidden. (laughs) Still, it's fun. (laughs) Just like a very funny guy. But a fascinating interview. Highly recommend everybody reads it. And, uh, you know, let's talk about another big thing on the Biden agenda that they're watching that's coming up in these, these elections. Yeah, I, 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 you know, when I interviewed Navalny for my book, I, he had the funniest, uh, he had the funniest sense of humor. And it was like this dark, weird sense of humor, too, where like he kept making fun of me for, for being spied on by Black Cube, you know. And so like as late as when I, I was texting with him when he was in Germany, 
and and I was like, dude, you know, um, you, are you sure? You know, he was shifting which communications platform we're using. I'm like, no, it's totally fine. Like, whatever you need to do, man, you got a lot to worry about. And he's like, no, I think you have a lot to worry about. <laughs> you know, maybe the Black Cube guys are the ones spying on us, you know. But it was just kind of this weird, dark humor that I loved. Um, but look, I, I think, well, first of all, like, the treatment of Navalny does not suggest that Putin thinks that he would be in a strong position if there was like an election tomorrow and mm-hmm. Navalny was free to run against him. You no. don't persecute someone and try to destroy their whole organization if you're confident in how these elections are going to go. And and all reports are they're harassing everybody. Yeah, um, but Navalny's spokeswoman just fled Russia in yeah. the elections. Um, she had gotten uh, an 18-month you know, set of restrictions on her freedom of movement because they found her guilty of violating COVID-19 safety rules, right? Another fig leaf punishment. Yeah. And, you know, his Navalny's point about sanctions is really important. You know, here's the guy that ostensibly is the kind of person that, you know, you, you would want to listen to. <laughs> like we were saying, listen to the Afghan people. Well, if you're trying to support democracy in Russia, maybe listen to the leading mm-hmm. democracy activists. And he's saying... Like, yeah, target the shit out of the oligarchs, but stop fucking with all the other Russian people because you're just hurting my people. Like that, uh, we need to internalize that lesson and, and, and figure out ways to target our actions. And the, and the, the thing I'm going to watch here, Tommy, and, and we'll be able to talk next week about this Ukraine visit. Um, I'm curious if coming out of this Afghanistan decision, um, and there's kind of a hawkish turn from the Biden people on some other things, mm. you know, to kind of show like- right. Hey, no, this isn't about retreating from the world. Right. Um, you know, whether that's increasing their support to Ukraine, whether, you know, the China-Russia language Biden referenced that at the end of his speech. I I would guess, and this is not, and this is really just a guess, like I would guess we're going to see some of that. That like one of the ways that they're going to try to address some of this criticism they got um, about America retreating from the world and, and what a credibility blow this is is to show that they they they're going to flex in some other places and that 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 will be you know be that depends on what the places are and how they choose to do it obviously but that that would be an interesting dynamic to watch it's been interesting to see so some of the stories you know a few days ago or a week ago talked about how one of the things that really influenced Biden in terms of the Afghanistan withdrawal decision was intelligence he saw suggesting that Russia and China wanted us to stay in Afghanistan and get bogged down for longer. I think he mentioned that in his speech today. It's notable that that's become part of like the core argument. I don't doubt that. And I believe so, it too. I, I so these too. people who are like, what a big win for, for China. Number one, the Taliban was the biggest ally of the Uyghurs back in the day. That's why those Uyghurs were in Afghanistan with the Taliban. And, and having a kind of extremist cabal running Afghanistan you know, in ways that could spill over violence into some of the other Central Asian countries. And you've seen Pakistani Taliban attacking Chinese interests in Pakistan. Like, yes, China likes to see the U.S. humiliated. They love that. But I'm not sure that they're thrilled that the Taliban runs uh, Afghanistan. And same thing with Russia. They pulled their people out of Afghanistan um, as well. Uh, and so, I, I, yeah, I think that, that the best case scenario for for Russia and China was the U.S., continuing to steadily lose in Afghanistan over a period of, of years. Um, well, they like to see the U.S., you know, let's face it, lose um, in Afghanistan. They, 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 I don't know that they're like thrilled that the Taliban 
is is running Afghanistan right in their neighborhood. Yeah, unless they can just buy them off and get access to, you know, the the, other, the dumb argument you always try. see They're popping up is like there are rare earth metals in Afghanistan. I don't buy that. We for, should stay uh, yeah. and get. It's like, ugh, my God. by the way, first of all, so it's a colonial exploitation. I, they will try to to buy them off. The Chinese in particular, and you know, they may do it. They may wear all do it. This idea that there's like three trillion dollars worth uh, of rare earth materials. Yes. I mean, like, let's just go down memory lane, right? We've been hearing this forever. You were in government when that story came out. That story came out like I think and. You know, correct me. I may be wrong, but I think like the U.S. military like helped put that out because they wanted to like justify like the That's value of Afghanistan possible. or something. Like, or I just remember like them talking about it. I've yet to see like the Chinese have like a copper interest in Afghanistan, I think, and they have an oil interest, and they haven't been able to develop it because guess what? If the security situation is shitty, or if you've got a bunch of Taliban like running the place, it's not. It's not that easy to get it like rare earth materials and minerals and stuff, you know? So uh, I mean, maybe five years, 10 years down the line, you'll see some mining, but the idea that there's gonna be some like bonanza, mineral bonanza, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, don't know. It, it's this, there's this suggestion that there's this windfall to come, right? I, yeah, I remember when those stories came out when we were in the administration. I remember, I think I dug deep into some intelligence we had on it and it did just seem like a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah, yeah. We'll I mean, see. We'll a see hypothetical maybe. of like the best case scenario that assumes a functioning government and a lot of capability. And and, and, and I think more of the Chinese are going to try to buy off the Taliban. You know, when the Taliban went to China before, two weeks before Kabul fell, I think what the Chinese are trying to get from the Taliban is an assurance that they wouldn't support like Uyghur separatists. Uh, and I'm sure the Taliban probably gave them that assurance and said, hey, but, you know, could you recognize us? So I think the thing to watch is first countries to recognize the Taliban likely to include Pakistan and China and then China trying to, to essentially buy off the Taliban to just stay out of their business. Yeah, the Taliban will uh, immediately show to the world that they are not in any way religious focused. They could give a shit about liberating Muslims who are being, you know, oppressed like the Uyghurs and they're they're for sale. They seem to have like 20 years on and it, it connects to what we were saying earlier. Some guys probably are still like full on religious ideologue nutcases. And some of these people seem like they've developed a pretty pragmatic streak. I mean, shit, they've been trading in and poppies and heroin. You yep. know? I mean, these are not people who are above dirtying their hands. It's obviously. a real mafia vibe. Yeah, there's a bit of a mafia vibe with a streak of, of of hardcore ideology, but that's probably you know among some some of their their foot soldiers more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's all I got for today. Anything else you want to talk about? Um, the Patriots released uh, Cam Newton. I want to. Um, have you followed this Mets thing? Okay, so there was <laughs> was it Javi Baez who did a thumbs down? Javi he, Baez and, and Lindor who we were paying three hundred plus million dollars for the next decade to. You do, know? do we give a shit about this? Is this is this like a bunch of old white baseball writers being like unwritten rules? Uh, say, I mean, it was a little weird to have like your star player like booing the fans, but it was just <laughs> such a classic <laughs> Mets because they did the interview and the guys like, yeah, you know, they booed us. <laughs> And so if they boo us when we do something bad, we're going to boo them when we do something good. And I'm like, look. <laughs> I love I, that. I'm all for player empowerment, <laughs> but it's just like, it's such a Mets story. Like it's bad enough the Mets collapse. They've been on a terrible fucking losing streak. But then they boo the fans. <laughs> like, come on. Baseball is supposed to be my like, my escapism from like the, all the kind of other shit I have to think about all day. And like, and then I'm getting booed by my own players I'm cheering for. You know? I think that's the funniest goddamn thing I have, <laughs> yeah, I have yeah, ever heard. Yeah. I love I love the idea 
of booing of players booing fans, fans. Or, yeah. or booing umpires <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Patriots, we um, we released uh, Cam Newton, which means that Mac Jones, QB out of Alabama, uh, is undoubtedly going to be the starter. I'm going to get myself excited about that. I think it'll be okay. I just can't stop thinking about what could have been if we traded up to 11 and gotten Justin Fields out of Ohio State, who is just the man. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was surprised that they they let Ken go so fast. But, I mean, maybe you're in a hurry to get to the future, you know? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, weird. Weird vibes, I guess. Yeah. Who knows? Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks for listening. Any birthday puns? Not really, man. I don't know. It's a Tuesday. Recording a podcast? Like, Hannah's got some stuff she's working on. I got... You know, the last week was full of stuff. Next weekend's a year away and it's a holiday. This is what happens when you have an August 31st birthday. You're kind of like, yeah. you always fall kind of weirdly around Labor Day and, and you know, just yeah. people, people got stuff going on. Yeah, you slip through the cracks. My mom will probably text me. Have you texted yet, Tommy's mom? She has. Yeah, okay, good. First thing. Yeah, good. Yeah, first. <laughs> and, she, and she posted a, a photo on her Instagram but she, uh, but it was a vertical photo that she accidentally posted horizontally. So, <laughs> but it kind of evolves because, like, when you're like, you know, I think when you first go to college, like your parents call and they like sing happy birthday or some mm-hmm. shit, and now you like get a text, you know, <laughs> like it's like, my, yes, my dad, uh, my dad just somehow thought I had the same number for four years of college, so he would leave the same voice message on the same number, and whoever lived there would just forward it to me. Back in the day of answering machines. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. Like, oh, God, yeah. I shouldn't have brought this up. Okay, yeah. that's it. Okay, good. We're done for today. Shout out uh, Mac Jones. Shout out Justin Fields. Shout, Shout out, out Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor. Bye. <laughs> 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 Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.